Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to Just Talking Musicals, the podcast and YouTube show where we discuss all things from Broadway and beyond. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to join the conversation. Just Talking Musicals, Musicals, with you. Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to Just Talking Musicals and the third part of our behind-the-scenes look at the iconic Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun from 1946. We pick up the story with one of America's leading composers of the day, Irving Berlin, in full swing writing the songs for this new show about one of the most famous women in America at the turn of the 20th century, none other than the sharp-shooting phenomenon from Ohio, Miss Annie Oakley. The original idea for the show had come from writer Dorothy Fields, who had it in mind that her friend Ethel Merman would be perfect to play the gun-slinging, independent-minded Annie Oakley. She and her brother Herbert wrote the book for the show and Dorothy's idea was clearly inspired as Annie Oakley's real life story was quite decidedly extraordinary. According to the National Women's History Museum in Virginia, in 1875, when Annie was just 15 years old, she went to Cincinnati to compete against marksman Frank E. Butler, who travelled around the country challenging people to shooting competitions. During the competition, Annie shot all 25 shots and Butler missed one, making her the winner. In time, they fell in love, married and joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and Annie became the headline star of the show. She would shoot glass balls out of the air, shoot through playing cards and shoot cigarettes out of her husband's mouth. Oakley and Butler stayed with the Wild West show for 16 years and during that time, their travels took them as far as France, Italy and Spain and to England to take part in the celebrations for Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887, reportedly by royal command and in front of a crowd of 28,000 people after thousands had lined the streets when the exhibition made its way to Earl's Court in London on opening night. So with such an extraordinary real-life story for Dorothy and Herbert Fields to base their show on, and with songs written by one of Broadway's leading lights, Irving Berlin, they most definitely had a strong show in the making. Add to this list Joshua Logan as director. Logan had worked on Broadway and been assistant director on the film This Is the Army with Irving Berlin in 1942, and had organised jeep shows for soldiers based near the front lines during the war. When Dorothy Fields originally came up with the idea for the show, she had had one leading lady in mind for the lead role, and that was her friend Ethel Merman, and they cast Ray Middleton as Annie's husband-to-be, Frank Butler. The original cast for the show listed 37 characters, plus a full cast of singers and dancers, and it went into rehearsals and off to New Haven for their customary pre-Broadway tryouts. And it was only when they got to New Haven for the pre-Broadway tryouts that they discovered there was a problem with the orchestral score for the show. Broadway composers and songwriters over the years have come from varying backgrounds. Some were classically trained and could notate their music as they worked. Some could write a basic part with piano and some, like Irving Berlin, would come up with the words and the melody line and then work with a trained musician known as a music secretary who could score the music for them, all ready to hand to the next person who would write all the orchestral parts. Irving Berlin's music secretary was a man called Helmi Kraser, and once Helmi and Irving had agreed on the sound of a song, it was apparently absolutely sacred. All the chords had to have a particular sound. 
On this occasion, it seems the orchestrator, Philip Lang, who had been hired by Richard Rogers himself, had for some particular reason missed the mark. According to Jay Blackton, who conducted the original show, when Irving wrote a song and dictated it to Helmy Crozer, that piano part was sacred. That was the way Irving wanted the orchestra to play it, with his little answers between phrases and nothing else. With that, Richard Rogers was straight on the phone to call in the services of Robert Russell Bennett, the veritable god of orchestration on Broadway at the time, who turned up at the theatre the next morning at 10, saving the day and miraculously rewriting the score in time for opening night. Then, just a few days before they were due to open at the Imperial Theatre on Broadway, a steel girder holding up the roof of the stage buckled and a wall of scenery fell and rendered the theatre out of bounds for two whole weeks. Added to which, according to Dorothy Field's biographer, Richard Rogers was actually on stage at the time it happened and was saved from injury only by a quick-thinking stagehand who managed to push him out of harm's way as the scenery collapsed. With the Imperial Theatre fixed and safe again, Annie Get Your Gun finally opened on May the 16th, 1946. And by the second act, the assembled throng knew they had a hit. Some people in the audience that night may have been expecting another groundbreaking show like Oklahoma and may have been slightly surprised when they realised they were in fact in the presence of a good old-fashioned entertaining turn from Irving Berlin. But it was polished to a sheen and delivered with gusto and they finally sat back, laughed and had a really good time. On the morning after the show opened, Lewis Nichols, the theatre critic for the New York Times, reported, Mr Berlin's return to home ground is news of high and important order. Miss Merman is regarded as heaven's gift to the musical show, and there is nothing about the new one to detract from that reputation. Miss Merman is deadly with a rifle over her shoulder. She can scream out the air of a song so that the building trembles, and she can be initiated into an Indian tribe in such a way the event is singularly funny. In short, Annie Get Your Gun was a smash hit, going on to run for a total of 1,147 performances, making it one of the longest-running musicals of the whole of the 1940s, whilst notching up a career best on Broadway for its leading lady. A US tour followed in 1947 with John Raitt playing Frank Butler and the multi-talented Mary Martin starring as Annie Oakley, and she stayed with the tour until the middle of 1948, when she won herself one of the very new awards on Broadway that season, named in memory of Antoinette Perry, and forever after known as the Tony Awards. And on the 7th of June 1947, Annie Get Your Gun opened at the Coliseum in London's West End, making a star of Dolores Gray, the young American singer in the lead role, who opened the show on her 23rd birthday and stayed with it right through to the end of its record-breaking run 1,304 performances later. And apparently, on that final evening in London, the last night audience was so reluctant to let the show end that they kept clapping for a full half an hour after the final curtain, only finally letting go of the dream after Grey and her co-star Bill Johnson came back onto an empty stage to sing They Say It's Wonderful for one last time. And then, on the 4th of April 1949, producer Arthur Freed and MGM went into production with the film version of Annie Get Your Gun after buying the film rights for a record $700,000. They had only one star in mind to play, Annie, and that was the silver screen's favourite girl next door, Judy Garland, with Sidney Sheldon writing the screenplay and Busby Barkley directing. Arthur Freed and his film unit had an impressive reputation in Hollywood, with creatives who knew their craft and worked hard as a team.
The role of Frank Butler went to a relative newcomer to the movies, an American singer by the name of Howard Keel, who had recently taken London's West End by storm, playing the role of Curly McLean in Oklahoma. He was 29 years old, 6 feet 4 inches tall, with a rich baritone voice, and was the perfect match for Judy Garland's Annie Oakley. But once again, it wasn't all to be plain sailing. On just the second day of filming, Howard Keel fell off his horse and broke his ankle, and people started talking about it being a bad omen for the film. With production in full swing, Judy Garland recorded her songs and started filming her scenes. But she was reportedly unnerved by Busby Barclay's rather harsh manner and somewhat stilted style of directing. She started turning up late on set or sometimes didn't turn up at all. And after two months, she was sadly suspended from the set and Barclay, at the behest of Arthur Freed, was fired. Right, that's it for this episode, but coming up, keep watching for how they finally got the film back up on its feet and into the history books. I'm Leslie Ann Knight. You can find earlier episodes and actually see me talking on our Just Talking Musicals YouTube channel, and we'd love it if you subscribe and follow along with the conversation on social media as well. Just Talking Musicals, musicals with you.